You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up on today's show, we kick off Volunteer Week and the good work by volunteers not only here in the region, but across the country, too. Also ahead, the York Region Food Network and their goal to ensure that the residents of York Region have healthy and sustainable food. But we begin in Humboldt with the city's mayor, Rob Mensch. The Humboldt Broncos junior hockey team was on its way to a playoff game when the collision happened on April 6th. 16 were killed, another 13 injured. It was a story around the world, and especially here at home, with so many of us who love the game and have children who play. Mr. Mayor, can you take us back to what it was like for your city a year ago? Well, it started off with shock, I think, you know, just as, uh, you know, as the news came came in, uh, what had happened. Um, I know that uh, many members of the community did go down to the, down to the arena to uh, be together and, and wait for news. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a very, very dark uh time for our community the first uh, number of weeks to months for sure and what was it like for you personally during those first few days and where did you go um i was down like most of the time the first few days down at the arena with everybody else we uh gathered there as a community Uh, we had a vigil on sunday night of course and uh you know and then it was just uh trying to be there uh, uh for each other and uh and uh help each other as the news came in and uh, that type of thing so and what it was what was it like and what did you feel when you saw the outpouring of compassion and support um, across the country well that was something that was very helpful to our community and and to the to the families uh, just to see that outpouring of uh, of love and support that came in from pretty much every corner of the country and and even beyond that and uh, as as uh, time moved on through the next uh, number of months i think that support was uh, um, just the extent of it was uh, quite awe-inspiring uh, just uh, i think last count we uh, uh you know things that were sent our way uh anywhere from uh, um, cards to letters to quilts to that type of thing was probably in the range of 10,000 different items. So it was uh, quite remarkable. Can you share some of the conversations and communication you've had with some of the families? Well, I think the families, uh, you know, the conversations I've had over the last while was, uh, you know, trying to uh, help them um, any way we could as a community. Um, A lot of the families were not from here, so... Um, there was, a, I guess, an extension of, uh, of the distance involved, but uh, I was able to get up to St. Albert for the fundraiser they did up there over the summer, and, uh, um, you know, some of, the, some of that was uh, good to get together with families and uh, just some of the local uh, parents. I think after, you know, as summer approached and different events were, I think a lot of them were, um, I think, just 
it was hard for their grieving process to have to do it in public. Um, you know, a, a number of different events that were held for them. I think they uh, sometimes just wish they could, uh, you know, have some privacy and uh, not have to deal with all the, all the, um, you know, attention that was they were getting. So, Now, the one-year anniversary memorial service has been described as one of hope and remembrance. Can you share a little bit about what's planned? Yeah, so we had uh, a group of parents uh, uh, approach us that they had already gotten together with a local uh, ministerial association, uh, which is just a group of all the different uh, churches in our community. And uh, they had already gone down the road of planning an event of some sort uh, to mark the anniversary. So um, we as a city were thinking we needed to do something, but it was a relief that they had already um, done some initial planning there. So um, the event itself will, uh, will uh, I think, be, like you said, one of hope and, uh, and moving forward and... Uh, and while at the same time remembering those that lost their lives and those that were affected, some of uh, whom were going to be affected for the rest of their lives. Um, so it was uh, nice to see the parents uh, offer that, um, uh, something that they wanted to do for the community and for themselves. Do you expect that the parents um, of some of those boys will be at the memorial service? Yes, they are, they've already, um, I'm not sure how many, but um, a number of them will be. Um, I, they've been involved in the planning and they're uh, very much offering input on uh, what's going on. So um, it's it's good and I'm sure they will be uh, there. Some will choose not to come. I've had some uh, some of the players and some of the parents say that they probably won't come, but uh, it's going to be televised, so um, they have that option to uh, as a, you know as uh, their choice to not come. And what have you heard from the players and the team? Um, I haven't, uh, on the subject of this, not a whole lot. Um, um, the team, I think, was uh, um, busy with their playoffs and that type of thing. So uh, they are involved in the planning of this, so, and they will, be, uh, they will be front and center as well. So. Well, thank you for taking your time um, and taking the time, Mr. Mayor, for joining us. And know that all of us will keep humbled in our hearts. Okay. Well, thank you. April 6, 2018 was like any other day for most Canadians until the news broke that evening about what happened with the Humboldt Broncos bus crash that shocked the nation and then ended up going viral around the world. To talk more about what happened to that small town in all of Canada, thrilled to be speaking to Grant Bastido, who is in charge of crisis management during the crash. Grant, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Grant, I mean, I, I mean, crisis management is one thing. Had, had anything in your background prepared you for the magnitude of what you dealt with after the accident with the humble Broncos? Uh, no, it, well, you know, I've been doing uh, crisis management for about 28 years, and every other crisis that we've ever had anything to do with paled in comparison to this one. And the biggest, uh, the biggest and scariest part for this one was that that we were completely unprepared for this crisis. Nobody had put together a crisis plan, and and uh, and we also had lost the Twitter and uh, Facebook and the website passwords with the coaches that were on the bus. So we had no way to communicate with people. So it just made it uh, a, a very difficult thing to manage. 
I, I know for myself, Grant, and for a lot of my friends, it was difficult to digest and understand really the magnitude of what was happening, what actually took place. And then all of a sudden it became headline news, not just in Canada, but BBC, uh, European newspapers, CNN. It was a worldwide story in an instant. Yeah, and that's the thing that, that made it extra scary when you're managing something like this um, is you're, you're, we were basically having to wing it in the public eye with you know, with New York Times and the BBC and the Australian Broadcasting Network and all of Canada's national news all all at the doorstep, and we we were having to wing it in real time. So it made it uh, especially challenging. Uh, Grant, I, I mean, I was, and I know our family donated to it, but I was completely blown away by the response to the GoFundMe campaign for the families, for the victims, for the people of Humboldt. When did you become aware of that, and when did you become aware that it had taken on a life of its own? Um, we knew about it fairly soon after it started to take off, and we could see that it, it could become a challenge just because of the fact that it was going so extraordinarily high that we were worried that people would become resentful about you know, how much was there. Um, and so that was why the decision was made that they were going to cap it uh, about uh, about a week in, I guess. They capped it, and it still made over $15.5 million. So the support from Canadians was absolutely, well, people from around the world, but uh, the support was absolutely astronomical, and it, was, uh, it made it uh, very interesting when there's suddenly this huge amount of money in place. I know friends of mine, I had tears in my eyes on Hockey Night when Sheldon Kennedy spoke about the incident with Ron McLean. Um, uh, friends of mine who I thought had never cried in their life, just thinking about it brought tears to their eyes. The stick campaign outside people's homes. Uh, I mean, I there was no end. There was Drake sitting courtside at a Raptors playoff game with a Humboldt Broncos jersey. I mean, from your standpoint, I mean, it's it, it's almost, how did you keep control of everything that just exploded people all wanted to be a part of it yeah it was um it was absolutely absolutely extraordinary the one day that really blew our minds was the jersey day where everybody wore their jerseys it was the wednesday after and we were being sent we had a a, a media email and we were being sent literally thousands of pictures from people from all over the world. There was, there was like one from Uganda. Hmm. There were people from all over the United States. There was the entire parliament, the entire legislatures from each legislature, schools, celebrities. It was absolutely extraordinary. And we just, uh, you know, we had to sort of figure out a way to show how much this support meant. So that was, that was our response to it. And we, have finally had access to the Twitter accounts, uh, the Twitter and Facebook accounts, and we started uh, messaging, you know, our thanks and gratitude for all the support, and it was just extraordinary, the, the love that came back over uh, social media with that. Grant, I, I had the privilege to meet Chris Joseph, uh, whose son Jackson passed away in the bus accident, and uh, him and his wife are wonderful, inspiring people. Uh, it was the worst of life to see what happened. To have, I mean, we're parents, or my wife and I, to teenage kids about the same age as the kids in the bus. But it, in some ways, I, I felt in this crazy world, Grant, we saw the best of people who reached out and tried to help. And from your standpoint, it, that had to be heartwarming. Yeah, it was amazing. We couldn't believe what we saw, actually. Uh, Grant Pistito is a crisis management and worked with the Humboldt Broncos who. 
Uh, the name Humble and Broncos, uh, I think, inspires people around the world. I mean, a lot of people in this country have a favorite hockey team. And I think after that, unfortunately, Grant, a lot of people view the Humble Broncos as their second favorite team and always will. Uh, for you and your staff, you guys should be very proud of what you did because uh, you took some light out of the hor- horrible accident of the darkness of the bus crash and made us Canadians realize, you know, what we're all about. So thank you. Thanks for having me here. Pleasure, Grant. Thank you for doing this. Take care. We continue to mark the anniversary of the Humboldt bus crash next with the story of one young man's legacy. April 7th is Green Shirt Day, all about Logan Boulay and uh, a young man who donated his organs after passing away in the bus crash. To talk more about it and the importance of donating your organs, I'm thrilled to be speaking to the president and CEO of the Trillium Gifts of Life Network, Ronnie Gafsey. Ronnie, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, and happy to be with you. You know, Ronnie, I I guess I'm a little naive. I assumed that this was something that most Canadians uh, checked off on their driver's license, uh, agreeing to donate organs in case of death. But I I get the impression that there's still a lot of work to be done to get more people on board. Absolutely, uh, Jim. First of all, well, a few years ago, we would receive, with our driver's license, the opportunity to sign the back, and that was... Uh, our agreement to be a donor, that's no longer the case. Today you have to formally register consent and you can either do so uh, online in less than two minutes, it's very easy, at www.beadonor.ca or when you're visiting Service Ontario or receive uh, something in the mail from Service Ontario such as Uh, your renewed driver's license, photo health card, you can register then. It's very easy and simple to do it, but it's not signing a donor card any longer. And today, 33% of the Ontario population who's eligible have registered. Not enough. No. Just not enough. No, but, you know, I guess out of the darkness of last year's tragedy, we are seeing the paradigm shift a little bit. When Logan Boulay and his family donated those organs, um, uh, it's amazing. 100,000 Canadians registered to be an organ donor because they were so inspired by it, and it became something known as the Boulay Effect, which turned into Green Shirt Day. It's turned into Green Shirt Day, inspired and supported by his parents, who uh, were told by him, they were told by Logan that he wanted to be a donor and he registered to be a donor. And in their grief, in their sorrow, they are so proud of him and the legacy that he's left, the fact that he saved six lives. They are the motivation behind Green Shirt Day. And we hope everybody will honor Logan on, on Sunday, April 7th, and wear a green shirt to work or to school on, on the 8th. You, you know what, uh, Ronnie? I mean, as a parent, I get emotional just thinking about this, how selfless that is for Logan to do this. Um, but you think you, you mentioned it. By doing this, he saved six lives. If more people did this, think how many lives could be saved every day in the province and the country. It's staggering, the numbers. It's staggering. One organ donor can save eight lives through, that's through organs, such as heart, liver, uh, kidneys, etc., and enhance the lives of 75 others through eye donation, skin, bone, heart valves. It's astounding what a difference we human beings can make for each other. 
So we would ask everybody to push through their procrastination and register consent and talk to your family and do it now. And, and Jim, I want to tell you that in York region, there are today 141 people on the wait list for a life-saving transplant. Wow. That's, that's incredible. They, they are right. They are there. They are your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues. There are 1,600 in the province and 141 in York region. And every day, sadly, uh, they wait for an organ and approximately every three days, one dies just waiting. Thrilled to be speaking to Ronnie Gavsey. She's the president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. And after what happened with the humble bus accident, Logan Boulay, and the Boulay effect, did you see an increase in organ donors and people signing up to agree to do this with the Trillium Life Network as an aftermath of all this? Jim, we saw a tremendous increase. We can tell you that in the month of April, which is Be a Donor Month, uh, last year there was a twenty. There were 23,000 people in Ontario who registered consent, 40% increase over the previous April. That's, that's and incredible. that is a that's a reflection of the impact that Logan Dulay had. Well, uh, uh, Ronnie, you said it best. April seventh, wear a green shirt. Now Monday, people are back to school and work. I want you to wear a green shirt again. Post it on social media. Tag the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Tag the uh, tag the Humboldt Broncos. Hashtag Humboldt Strong, and let everyone know in the region across the world that we are going to do our part to get the word out, the importance of signing that donor card. Because, Ronnie, when I hear about Logan Belay and what he did, there, you could be a Logan Belay yourself and save multiple lives just by doing that one simple gesture. One simple gesture. Registration is a gift in uh, itself. Ronnie, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I, I mean, I wish bus accidents and tragedies like what happened with the Humboldt Broncos didn't happen. But you know what? I think his family should be very proud. And, um you know, I'm sorry, I'm just getting emotional thinking about it, but Logan Belay saving a lot of lives doing this. It's pretty amazing. Uh, it, it, takes, it, it grabs at the heart of each one of us. Thank you, Thank Ron. you, Jim. Thank you. Take care. In March, the driver of the truck was given an eight-year sentence for 29 counts of dangerous driving. As a permanent resident, he also faces deportation once his sentence has been served. We'll be right back. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including the kickoff to Volunteer Week. You're listening to 105.9 The Region, and next on The Feed, we're going to focus on volunteers as we kick off Volunteer Week. And joining us next is Paula Spivak, who is the President and CEO of Volunteer Canada. Paula, thank you for joining us. Hello, bonjour. Thank you for inviting us to celebrate National Volunteer Week. Can you tell us a bit about Volunteer Canada? Absolutely. So Volunteer Canada was founded by local volunteer centers. There are 220 local volunteer centers in the communities across the country that provide leadership on volunteering. And what we do is we provide national leadership around trends, research, uh, tools to help organizations engage volunteers, to help people uh, find volunteering, to help businesses develop employee volunteer programs, and just uh, surround ourselves with really enthusiastic, passionate people. And why did you want to become involved in Volunteer Canada? Let's start there. 
Sure. Well, um, throughout my life, uh, my family and friends, we were always involved in community and it felt really natural. And over the years, I, my career has always been in social service and community organizing. And everything meaningful that has happened in communities from what I've seen has happened through volunteers. Um, so that, uh, you know, the idea that communities have what they need to thrive, but it's always a matter of connecting people with the opportunities and the needs and, um, and then helping people work together. And where do you think that starts? Does it start within that family home where, you know, we become involved in our community and we see the value in volunteer work? It can happen in many ways. In some cases, it does happen by seeing family members or um, a relationship with another adult or member of your family circle or friends. Sometimes it happens in schools. Some of the, the research shows that people who've been involved in student councils, for example, are much more likely to volunteer as adults um, because of that experience, seeing themselves and the power of working together with others and really shaping um, their community, whether it's our school community or their neighborhood or society, um, to reflect the values that they have. Now, I remember back in my day that that's exactly the way it went for me. I was part of my high school student council. I did volunteer before I got my first paying job. Um, but I'm not sure I see that as much these days. I hate to date myself, but I feel like I don't see it as much. Do you think that um, this new generation uh, is interested in volunteering and they see the value in it? Absolutely. So one of the myths um, that I think um, is out there is that younger generations are not as involved, whereas um, that's absolutely the reverse um, from what we're seeing and the research that uh, also shows that. And in fact, um, younger volunteers, so people aged 15 to 19, actually have the highest volunteer rate among all the age groups. It's not because of the high school graduation requirement. It actually... Um, 66% of that age group volunteers um, each year, and they do that an average of 110 hours a year, um, and in all kinds of areas, whether it's in school, in neighborhoods, or in communities. Um, so, that, so in terms of formal volunteering, the um, youth volunteer rate continues to be high, and it was high um, even before any of those programs existed. The second thing about that is that... Uh, the definition of volunteering is really expanding. So yes, there's formal volunteering, you know, taking on a position through an organization, but there's also a lot of opportunities to express our values through what we do every day. So whether it's composting your orange peel or choosing to buy coffee at a, you know, a fair trade coffee house or carpooling, um, you know, things that you do and decisions that you make with respect to purchasing and, and how you engage um, with your community and the environment, um, they all um, produce great results, and they're all part of how we give to community. Now, what about those other age groups? Are there other age groups that are involved in volunteering, or is it just about, you know, that, uh, that young people and, and getting them involved first? What about people who are, you know, in the middle of their career or perhaps have wrapped up their career? Are there opportunities for them as well? Absolutely. So at Volunteer Canada, one of the things that we look at is um, the different stages of life, age groups, cohorts, and circumstances that lead to people's choices in volunteering, in addition to 
we're all individuals, so we all, you know, some people like to do things in groups, some people like to do things at home, and so on. But um, at every uh, stage of our life, we have different needs. So maybe at one stage, there is the interest in gaining skills and developing career. So in addition to helping out in the community, those benefits um, can be motivators. At other stages, it's a matter of contributing, for example, if you have children living at home, being part of the activities that your children are involved with and contributing to those. And so you might be participating in school or recreational and sports activities. Um, later on, you may be interested in um, exploring opportunities to meet others with the same values as you have in terms of um, interest. So you may have an interest in uh, homelessness or you may have an interest in the environment and want to meet others and join others um, who have those um, interests. Uh, later in life, it may be a matter of staying connected to community and also making sure the wisdom that you've gained throughout your life can be um, of benefit to community. Maybe you've had a family member who's experienced um, a health issue and you really feel close to that issue and want to make sure that you uh, contribute to that. So we have different motives motivations throughout our lives and different benefits and that's one of the beauties of volunteering is that it not only helps others, helps organizations, but also benefits the person volunteering. Now Paula, here we are, it's early April and we're kicking off National Volunteer Week. What can you tell us about that? Well, um, this year our theme for National Volunteer Week is the volunteer factor lifting communities and I think we were just talking about all the ways People lift communities by their volunteering, but also all the ways that people are lifted by volunteering themselves. So uh, we're celebrating, again, with local volunteer centers around the country, um, organizations around the country, businesses who engage volunteers and their, you know, their employees to volunteer. Um, many people are celebrating and looking at it from different angles. And Paula, what is your message, just before we wrap things up, what is your message to maybe someone who is thinking about volunteering, you know, maybe sitting on the fence a bit, what would you say to them? Well, there are 12.7 million Canadians volunteering and millions of others uh, expressing their values um, and um, engaging in things that are of interest. So there is something for everyone. And volunteering is not only about somebody who's okay helping someone who's not okay. In fact, that's more of an outdated notion. It's really about shaping the communities that we live in and finding our place and space. So I would say, first of all, um, congratulations and thank you to all those who are already volunteering and helping out. And secondly, all those who are thinking about it, there's something for you. Absolutely. And if our listeners want more information about National Volunteer Week and Volunteer Canada, where can they go? Go to volunteer.ca and look for National Volunteer Week under the campaign so you can get kits and, and thank you cards and posters, download things and get lots of ideas on how to celebrate National Volunteer Week. And if you're looking for volunteering, you just go to um, I Want to Volunteer and you can get connected to your local volunteer center, uh, find opportunities, or you can go to Canada Service Corps, which is a youth portal um, that connects people all over the country to volunteer opportunities. That's terrific, Paula. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Okay. Take care and happy National Volunteer Week. You're listening to the feed on 105.9 The Region. If you missed any part of our show, go to our website, 1059theregion.com. 
Afwaba is next with the programs from the York Region Food Network to increase access to fresh, affordable, and nutritious food. Now picture this scenario. There is a bunch of ingredients in the fridge and in the cabinet, but you just don't know how to put them together. Yes, that is an all too common scenario that happens with a lot of people. But don't worry, we have a solution here that can help you know how to put local fresh ingredients together to make a wonderful meal. Joining me to chat today from the York Region Food Network is Joan Stonehawker, who is the executive director. Joan, how are you doing today? I'm well, thanks. Wonderful. Okay, so first off, for the listeners that don't know, tell us about the York Region Food Network. So York Region Food Network is a nonprofit charity that operates in York Region with a vision of food for health and food for all. So we deliver programs and education to ensure that we have adequate food so that everybody can eat healthy and we also seek system solutions so that people can access the healthy food that we have available in our communities. That's awesome. And how long has the Food Network been running in York Region? It's it's interesting. It has been running for since 1986. It started off as a very grassroots organization to raise awareness of hunger and poverty in York Region because food banks were um, starting up after the recession in the 80s. And from there, we moved on to seeking sort of those more healthy and sustainable solutions like community gardens and community kitchen programs. Awesome. And of course, it, it has evolved so much uh, since then. And, it, and you now provide uh, so many things to the community, including on what you mentioned earlier, workshops. So there is a workshop that you are holding right now for youth, if you can talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, so we have a four-week series called um, Youth in the Kitchen. And it's um, a way to help youth get those basic food skills that they need. We've, um, we were fortunate enough to get um, some funding from the Ontario Trillium Foundation to explore what youth are interested in about food issues. And one of the things they come up with a lot is that they really want to make sure that they have the food skills that they'll need moving forward in life once they leave home. So they're just right, and we have a, a kitchen basics program, so they learn sort of those basic skills. And then once a month we offer another program where they use those skills and do more, a little more complicated meals. Nice. So a well-rounded sort of a workshop or a four-week workshop so as to help them put those skills into practice, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great idea, too, because... I think it's 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 pretty well known that we have become quite a drive-through culture. <laughs> we we try to find something that's already ready-made. If there's even instructions on the box, forget it. <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is a really good initiative. How did this initiative come about? Why is it important, um, in your opinion, that youth know how to cook? Well, <laughs> as I... Uh asked um, the chair of our board earlier, she said, so they don't starve. (laughs) Really, it really is important that we know how to take care of ourselves. We have the new beautiful um, Canada's food guide that talks about eating more whole foods and and more a more plant-based diet and we don't all have the food skills and food literacy to be able to do that. So this is an opportunity to grab youth when they're just striking out on their own. 
Perfect. And so what happens then after the four weeks? Let's say somebody comes in during the second session. Um, will there be repeat sessions throughout the year or is this um, like a trial run? This is our second four-week series that we're doing, and I believe we have another one planned. I'm not sure of the exact dates yet. And um, so we, we saw a real increase in uptake even from moving from session one to session two, and part of that is trying to figure out what times work better for youth to come to our programs. But it really is exciting to watch and listen to them all with varying levels of skills come into the kitchen and work together and meet each other because a big part of cooking is eating together and that social sort of conviviality that happens when people gather and eat together. I agree with you there. And so are there um, adult cooking classes, maybe some who are maybe into specific areas that they want to maybe better their skills at, or is it right now just for the young adults um, about to get out on their own? So we have a lot of cooking programs, <laughs> it seems, and, and, and they're growing all the time. We have um, another project called Newcomer Kitchens where we're bringing um, people together to cook often meals or food from different countries, and we bring people together, and it helps um, newcomers meet Canadians and um, work on their language skills while being more comfortable in their community. We do a program once a week where we create food and package it up for a local um, agency to give to some of their clients at at home. We do a breakfast drop-in. We have a good food box program. Lots going on. Wow, that's awesome. And I really love that um, the Newcomer Cooking Class Initiative. I I really think I want to talk about that at a future date, too, because uh, that's a that's a great way to sort of bring community together and, of course, learn a new skill while you're in a new place. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm, because, I mean, we hear from people that come to our programs a few different things. So we also do programs for people that are... Um, for seniors that may now be cooking for themselves because they've lost a partner, so and you may have lost interest in your in what in cooking for yourself. So trying to bring back that that level of caring and kind of make it easy for you. So many things happening. Bring people together. They always talk about how much fun it is to cook together and sit down and the laughter and noise that comes out of the kitchen is pretty amazing. <laughs> I can imagine. I, I agree with you there. Um, and so where can re- listeners go if they want to uh, volunteer or if they want to know more about the classes and, and sign up for future ones? Where can they go for more information? So if you go onto our website and sign up for our newsletter, we send out a, an update once a month letting people know what what classes are. So now that it's gardening season, we have a seed starting workshop coming up in early April. So it's um, www.yrfn for York Region Food Network .ca. That's the website and our phone number is 905-841-3101 and if you press zero you can get information. Joan, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me about this. It's truly been a pleasure. Well, thank you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next stop takes us to Richmond Hill and the history of the Presbyterian Church. Netta Sarshar with our history lesson. 
If you're a Margaret Atwood fan, you would know that the TV adaptation of Alias Grace has been listed as one of the 20 best TV shows by The Atlantic, and the most relevant show on TV by Rolling Stone magazine. But what you may not know is that the historical crime drama is based in our very own Richmond Hill and includes many of the town's landmarks. One of which is the Richmond Hill Presbyterian Church and the 200-year-old cemetery that exists in its courtyard. Joining me today is Reverend Duncan Jeffrey, the Richmond Hill Presbyterian Church's minister, to talk about the history of the church and its community. Hi, Duncan. How are you? Well, good morning. I'm very well, thank you. So, when was the Richmond Hill Presbyterian Church founded? Uh, that's an easy answer because it's all over the place. 1817. And I would just like your listeners to imagine Richmond Hill totally different. It would have been farms and forests, uh, really natural wildlife, uh, rivers, uh, very, very kind of inaccessible almost. It probably took at least a day to come from Toronto,、uh, and into that setting came the first settlers, and many of them were Scottish or Irish, and they had no church.、Uh, and in those days,、um, there was no service in Ontario to、uh, marry you or Uh, put your death in, or or, or to、uh, no- notify people of your birth. All that was done by churches. So these first settlers were very anxious, insecure, worried that there was nobody there to kind of record the the major events of their lives. So they actually got together, a group of them in Richmond Hill, and、uh, they asked to begin a church. They asked to call a minister. And that would be the first minister who came in 1817. Wow! Do we know how many people were part of the first congregation? We don't really have uh, very uh, clear numbers. I'm imagining probably six to ten families at that time. Those who'd be able to walk or at least ride a horse to the to the area, you know. It's my understanding that the cemetery in the courtyard of the church is even older than the church itself. Can you talk a little bit of its history? Yes, well, the cemetery、uh, dates back to 1806, 1806, and both the land for both the cemetery and the church were donated by a local landowner called James Miles.、Uh, he was referred to as Squire Miles, and he had a, a tavern and a general store in the corner of what's now Major Mac and Young Street, and he gave that land. And the cemetery started off first as a community cemetery; it's still a community cemetery, so there are. You don't need to be Presbyterian to be buried there.、Um, we have people from all the communities that make up our uh, area um, who are entombed in our facility here. And then a little bit later,、um, they started the congregation. The minister preached from a tree stump. Legend has it, and the tree stump was right、uh, where the cemetery is now. So it would have been a very kind of leafy setting.、Uh, they didn't build a church, I think, until about 1822, and that was a wooden church. And、uh, that was eventually replaced by the existing church in 1880. So, how has the how do we know all this? How has the church been able to preserve its history? Oh, we are great keepers of records in the Presbyterian Church. Everything is written down, and so we would have a a set of old notebooks or ledgers that go back to that time. Somewhat incomplete. There are obviously patchy areas in any record keeping, but. We have very、uh, good records of the actual start of the congregation. So another question that I had、uh, is: There any, you know, like we talked about、um, the six to ten families that m- probably were the founders of the church?、Um, would you say, like, are they also、um, buried in the cemetery? 
Well, there are quite a few. Yes, the first minister is buried there, the Reverend William Jenkins. Also, uh, James Miles, the squire, the landowner, he's buried there. And he was also a founding elder of the church in 1817. And a veteran of the War of 1812, we have about a dozen veterans of the War of 1812 who are buried in the cemetery. And also, um, kind of prominent names are now street names in Richmond Hill, like the Marsh family. Samuel Arnold died in 1849, age 88. We have Arnold Crescent right around the corner. Amos Wright, another uh, prominent uh, settler in the area. So um, it's like a little history of Richmond Hill. If you come up for a walk on a nice day, you can see lots of historic uh, monuments in our cemetery. That's right. And um, I guess since I made the Alias Grace reference at the beginning, is there anybody uh, specific to Alias Grace, that, like to that novel and that story that is also buried in the church, in well, the cemetery? Well, we do know that uh, Kinnaird, who was the victim, the, the uh, I think he also was a landowner, farmer in the area. He was buried here together with his um, common-law wife, or mistress, you might say, and uh, there was no monument. So basically people asked to see their their graves. We can't show them because either there was a wooden monument that decayed or there was no monument because they weren't legally married. <laughs> Something of that sort uh, coming from that period of time, you know? Scandalous. I have to confess. Scandalous, yeah, is the word. I, I've actually been to the cemetery, and I have tried to find the grave unsuccessfully. Well, that would explain why. That, there we go. Now it makes sense. So how can people in York Region get more involved? Well, our church is very conspicuous. It's the first driveway on the left or the west going north on Young Street, uh, just north of Major Mackenzie. Uh, we have parking for about 60 cars. Uh, worship is always at 10.30 on Sundays. And if they want to call our church, the number is 905-884-4211. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. It's been good to talk to you. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.